So Leviticus chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall make the blood, shall take, sorry, bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift is a burnt offering, for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father God, we ask simply that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing in your sight this morning, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As human beings, we're stuck in time, aren't we? Uh, Like it or not, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, our lives are moving forward. And so instinctively, uh, we're driven by a desire and a hope that our lives will be getting better. Uh, Really from the earliest days, we we have a goal before us that we want to achieve, As we grow, those goals get more and more sophisticated. Children want to be firemen when they grow up, or pilots, or doctors, or train drivers. But as we become adults and we realise that maybe some of those careers are not quite as uh, realistic as we hoped, not many astronauts around, uh, our our goals don't disappear, they change. Uh, We we hope uh, for a settled, happy family. Uh, We hope for the lovely cottage in the countryside. Uh, We hope for the career that provides us enough that, well, we'll just be safe and happy and settled. Whether you're religious or or not religious, your your life is going somewhere. You'll have some sort of goal, even if you've never sat down and thought about it, some sort of picture of the future that you long to get to and you're working towards. That's why you work hard at your career. That's why you invest in your relationships. Uh, Whatever that future looks like for you, you are on a journey, inescapably on a journey. Uh, All of us have a desire. We know that our lives now are not quite right. They're not what we want them to be. And so we're working towards a a hoped-for perfect future. Uh, The Israelites, for whom this book was written, 
this book of Leviticus, knew they weren't yet home. They weren't in paradise, if you like. Uh, the setting of Leviticus is the desert. Okay, we're not told that in chapter one of the book, but if, if we'd read the story through from Exodus, we'd know that the Israelites, as they hear these words, are in the sand of the desert of Sinai. There's a big mountain in front of them where God has been speaking to them from the top. And they are on a journey. They're on a journey towards the promised land, a land that God has promised is going to be full with milk and honey, where everyone will be able to sit under their own tree in the shade and eat figs and drink wine. And it will be perfect. And so what has just happened, and we saw this last week, is God has built them a little, if you like, a little model village, a little model town to show them what life will be like. It's called the tabernacle. It's a tent. Uh, Hopefully you've got one of the little sheets. You'll see on the back of it, there's a picture or at least a map of it. Uh, this tent had three rooms, and the center of it is, is the tabernacle pro- proper, okay, the holy place and the most holy place. And we saw last week that it's decorated to remind the Israelites of the Garden of Eden. So the candlestick there is shaped like a tree. There's, there's um, angels sewn into the curtain on the outside, guarding it, just like the word guarding uh, the, uh, the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of where Israel want to go. But the question is, how can they get in? How can they gain entry? Uh, This first of the sacrifices we're looking at this morning, first of the offerings, this burnt offering, as it's called, is key to understanding how Israel and ultimately how we can arrive in paradise. That is what it does. It brings you into paradise, this sacrifice. So we're going to ask four questions. First of all, we're going to ask what happens, just literally what happened. Let's try and get the you know, the pieces, the steps in place, then why, then we'll think about how it works and finally what it means to us. So let's begin with just what happens. Let's work through the the, the sacrifice so we understand what we're dealing with. The first thing that would have to happen is that you, the the worshipper, you, the Israelite, would choose a a son of the herd. Okay, verse three, an offering from the herd. So this is going to be a cow, i.e. a bull, a male without blemish, literally a son. It has to be a perfect bull. Not a bull with dodgy eyes or a broken leg, not some sort of cheap knockoff bull that was going to die anyway, but one without blemish. And the priest would check that to make sure you're not bringing shoddy worship before the Lord. If you're not so rich, you can't afford a bull. Well, then down in verse uh, 10, you could bring uh, a ram, okay, a male sheep. And if you can't afford that, well, we didn't read it, but verse 14, you could bring a, a pigeon, a turtle dove. But they all work the same way. So we're going to focus on the bull because they're all the same. They work in the same way. They're just um, scaled depending on how wealthy you are. So you bring the perfect son of the herd. And what do you do? Well, the first thing you do, do you see? Verse four, you lay your hand on it. One hand on the head of the bull. Why? Well, it doesn't say why. There's no explanation. It's one of the problems with Leviticus. The book doesn't explain to us why the various steps happen. Uh, some people think it's transferring sin. So as you put your hand on the head of the animal, it's, uh, uh, you, it doesn't say you confess the sin, does it? But it's as if the sort of sin is transferred from you to the animal. Uh, the reason they think that is in the Day of Atonement, which is the, the big day in, in Leviticus 16, the big cleansing day, uh, the priest lays both hands on the, the bull and then he does confess their sins. Sorry, on the goat, not a bull. So some people think, well, it's the same here. It's a sort of transferring of sin. I think it's probably not the case here. It might be, but I don't think it's the case here. Partly um, because um, it's one hand here, not two, so it's a slightly different ritual. Uh, and partly too, because the, the goat that the priest confesses his, the sin on in the Day of Atonement with his two hands is then sent away from the tabernacle. 
It is not the goat that dies and ascends into God's presence, as this one does. We'll see in a minute. It's the goat that is sent away into the wilderness. It's a picture of our sin being taken away from God, not towards God. Whereas this uh, bull or this ram or this dove is going towards God. So I think most likely you lay your hand on to say, look, this is me. Okay, you're, you're identifying with the animal. This is going to represent me. I need a perfect, spotless representative. I can't go in. So a perfect animal is going to be my substitute. This is me. And that's also why I think these animals are chosen. They're animals from the home, if you like, from the flock, from things you own. You can't just catch a rabbit out in the wild or pick up a bit of roadkill and sacrifice that. It has to be something that kind of represents your life. It'd be a hugely costly thing to sacrifice a bull or a ram. These are the animals that feed you. It's the closest thing you can give to sacrificing your own life, if you like. These animals that sustain your life are going to die in your place. You can't do human sacrifice, obviously. So the closest thing are these animals from, from the home. So lay your hands on it. Then you kill it, not the priest. Okay, verse five, you kill the bull. The priest collects the blood and scatters it on the altar. And this is the altar in the courtyard. On your sheet, it's called the altar of the ascension offering. It's the same as the burnt offering. Different name, same offering. Uh, And then he burns it. But you see how he burns it? Two stages. First of all, verse eight, the head and the fat go on. The fat's the best bit. We think of the fat as the sort of gross bit we don't want to eat when we have a steak or something. But that's the best bit, the tasty bit. They go on, but the insides, the rest of the animal, need washing first. Uh, Again, down there in verse 13, the entrails and the legs. The rest of the body gets washed first with water, presumably from the basin that's there in the courtyard too, you'll see. And then the rest of it is burnt. So one of the unusual things about this offering is the whole thing goes Often it's just a part of it, but this one, the whole thing goes burnt up in smoke. And then there's one last stage, isn't there? Uh, What's the last stage? Uh, Well, the last stage, uh, actually, uh, is that the the ashes, the remains, are are taken to a clean place uh, outside the camp. Okay, the very last stage is that what's left, the ashes, are taken to a clean place outside the tabernacle. Uh, The the way the sacrifices are are explained in Leviticus is they're explained from the the worshippers' point of view uh, first up uh, in chapters 1 through 5. And then the second time round, they're explained from the priest's point of view. So that detail about being taken to a clean place isn't in chapter uh, 1, but it is in chapter 6 when when God's telling the priests what to do. So in chapter 6, they're told... Uh, with the remains, take it outside the camp. So that's what happens, but why? Okay, what's the purpose of this offering? Well, down there uh, in verse uh, three and four, there are two reasons. The first reason in verse four is that this offering is going to make atonement for the person who brings it. Atonement is a, is a made-up word in English, I mean. Okay, it, it literally, at one When the, the first translators of the Bible were trying to translate the Hebrew words and the Greek words. There was no word in English they could sort of reach for that fitted. So he made one up, at one moment. The words underneath don't work like that, but it's a good sense. Atonement means that we become at one with God. Our sin is paid for, the animal has died in our place, and we are cleansed. Our sin is covered over. 
It's why this sacrifice is one of the most basic ones. Uh, there are five sacrifices that are the key ones in Leviticus. Okay, the chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 in, in the book of Leviticus. And the first three are all found actually before Leviticus. They, they happen in Genesis as well. Uh, they're not new with the tabernacle. They're not new for the Israelites. The last two are different. So the first three are the most important ones. You can remember the ABC. Well, I remember those ABC anyway. Chapter one is this, this is the ascension offering. Okay, we'll see why in a minute. Chapter two, okay, once you've ascended, you've entered God's present, presence, there's a bring a gift offering. Okay, a tribute offering. You bring a gift. And then chapter three is the come and eat offering. Okay, it's the one where you eat, a bit like communion. So you ascend, you bring a gift, and then you come and eat. This is the ascension offering. Uh, it's the same offering that Noah gives, for example, after the flood. And therefore, as it's the first one, it has to deal with our sin. That's what atonement does. It deals with the fact that we're not worthy to enter God's presence. And so the bull or the ram or the bird dies in our place. The result, therefore, verse 3, well, the offerer becomes acceptable. You might be accepted before the Lord. This is the entrance sacrifice. This makes you, who in yourself is not acceptable, Israelite worshipper, acceptable to God. You can now come in, and not literally, you don't then walk into the rest of the tabernacle, but in your place, as it were, the animal goes. We see this in, in this sort of understanding of it as uh, the, the offering that, that makes you enter God's presence in two ways. Firstly, the name. It, it, I don't really like doing this, but it, I think we'll have to this week. Um, it's not actually called a burnt offering. The ESV translates it burnt offering all the way through. Burnt, burnt, burnt. But the word burnt literally means ascend, the going up offering. Okay, I'm not, I think the reason they translate it burnt is that that's what happens to it. Okay, the whole thing gets burnt up. But, but the word just means the going up offering, okay, the ascending offering. So, so the name tells us this offering is about you, represented by the animal, ascending, going up. And we see that in the action too, don't we? The whole thing is burnt on that altar, that bronze altar. What would happen? Well, children, when you burn smoke, which way does smoke go? Up, exactly. Now, what's above the bronze altar? Okay, if you look at the little sheet, what's above the bronze altar out in the courtyard? As the smoke goes up, where's it going to go? Well, it's going to go up into the sky, isn't it? There's nothing there. But there kind of is. Okay, there kind of is. I mean, there's no roof on that courtyard. But we saw last week that the way the tabernacle is built is that it's as if it is actually just three levels. Rather than the courtyard and then you go forwards and then to the holy place and then go forwards again and then to the most holy place. Actually, it's as if they're stacked on top of each other. Okay, I'm not going to go over why that's the case again. It's a bit like Mount Sinai, okay, the three levels. You meet on the outside if you're a normal worshipper. You're allowed halfway up if you're a, a leader. And if you're Moses, the, the, the sort of boss, you're allowed right at the very top. The bronze altar burns. But as the smoke goes up, what would it hit, if you like? What's the next story up? Well, it would hit the gold altar. You see, in, in the Holy of Holies. Sorry, not the Holy of Holies. In the holy place. That middle room. So do you see what's happening? The animal is burnt. And it goes up and it smells presumably a bit like a barbecue. But then it arrives symbolically on the gold altar in the holy place. And that is the altar of incense. It smells sweet, perfume. 
So by the time it arrives symbolically before God, because that's God's tent, that middle bit, it's where he lives, it is a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what it's called, in fact, down in verse uh, 13. A pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, Verse 9, verse 13, uh, and the final verse, verse 17. God loves this sacrifice. Uh, It's been transformed so that it pleases him. Did you see the picture? Do you remember the the, the tabernacle, that that tent in the middle? was a picture of Eden, the curtains with the angels sewn in, uh, with a guarding God's presence, like they guarded the Garden of Eden. Well, why, children, do you remember, what what did the angel that that, that guarded the Garden of Eden have? Do you remember, holding something, yeah. A sword, and what was happening to the sword? It was... Yeah, it was a light. It was burning, wasn't it? It was a burning sword. So to get into the Garden of Eden, you had to pass through a fire, well, fiery sword, okay? You had to go through a sword, pass the knife, and pass the fire. What's happened to this animal, okay, that has died, that ascends into the Garden of Eden? Well, it's gone under the knife, it's been killed, and it's been burned. It's gone through the knife and fire, okay? It's passed through those angels and arrived, as it were, symbolically in the Garden of Eden, arrived in God's presence, now, that is the only way in. Why did Jesus die? Okay, why, why did Jesus die? When we ask the question, we say, normally say something like, well, he died so that we could be forgiven, or he died for our sins, or... Why did Jesus die? Ultimately, he died not so that you could be forgiven, but so that you could come into God's presence. That forgiveness, if you like, is the, the means. It's not the final goal. The purpose of forgiveness is so that we can then enter God's presence. We can be with him. That's the point of the gospel. The gospel is going somewhere. It's not simply a message about how I can be cleansed and then just sort of get on with life out on my own. The point of the gospel is that I can be cleansed, forgiven, so that I can then enter God's presence. The gospel has a goal. Uh, so imagine someone uh, getting married. Uh, and... You know, he, he buys a ring and he buys some flowers and he books a church and a venue. And someone says to him, why are you doing all this? He says, well, so I can get married. And then the day comes and they marry and, you know, it's all lovely and everything. And then someone afterwards, all he talks about is the ring and the service and the flowers and the meal and the band and all his friends being there and the gifts he got. And so his friend says to him, well, well what about your wife? And he says, oh, well, uh, yeah, so I forgot about her. But the really amazing thing is, I got a ring okay, and a new toaster and some amazing flowers. And I saw all my friends. We kind of missed the point. You're focusing on the process, not the end result. The purpose of marriage is, well, the purpose of marriage is your spouse. Associated with the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to get you to God. That is the greatest blessing. Not forgiveness, not even justification or being adopted. All these amazing blessings. They're all there with a purpose, and that is to get you to God. That, therefore, is good news for us. It means the thing that God wants to give you most of all is himself. He doesn't just give you a packet of uh, gifts, forgiveness and sanctification. He gives you himself, ultimately. And it also means that that ought to be the thing we celebrate most as Christians. Okay, we don't want to be Christians who are walking around most excited about our certificate, you know, our entry certificate. The best thing is unforgiven. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Please don't hear this as undermining forgiveness. 
but you don't walk around telling everyone how, you know, how great your wedding certificate is, do you? You talk about how great your husband is, your wife is. Let's be Christians who are excited about God first and foremost. So that's what happens. That's why, why it happens. How does it work? How is it possible that a goat or a bull dying means we enter God's presence, or the Israelites symbolically enters God's presence? Well, come to the New Testament. We can go all sorts of places. Uh, Ephesians 4 calls Christ a fragrant offering, picking up that language, uh, that, you know, the sweet-smelling aroma. So we can go all sorts of places, but we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. Come to Hebrews 10, please. Page uh, 1006. The book of Hebrews, in some ways, is a commentary on the book of Leviticus. So it'd be worth reading over the next few weeks to help you understand Leviticus. And actually, as, as he- Hebrews 10 begins, it, it says something that ought to surprise us. Uh, Hebrews 10, page 1006, and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Leviticus, it's possible. It will atone, and Hebrews says it won't, can't. And we're going to look at that tension a bit more in a few weeks' time. But look how the, the argument unfolds. Consequently, therefore, because bulls can't pay for your sin, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've not taken no pleasure then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. Now, Christian, you know this, don't you? It is ultimately Christ, the true son. Remember the perfect, spotless son of the herd, the, 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 um, the spotless animal that represented your life, that had to die in your place? Well, ultimately, we needed a man to die in our place, a true son of our family. Leviticus began with God calling us to worship, calling us before him. If anyone would come before me, What does Christ say? Verse 7, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He was the one who lived the spotless life that we failed to live. And he was the one who willingly put himself under the sword, the knife, the fiery baptism of God's judgment on the cross. Why? Well, in order that he might then ascend. Christ is the true burnt offering eyes, fiery judgment, and even that little, that little detail about the, the remains of the burnt offering being taken and put in a clean place outside the camp. That interesting little detail, all of the Gospels tell us, no, three of the four Gospels, sorry, tell us, that Christ was buried in a tomb. And it, what are we told about Christ's tomb? Okay, three of the four Gospels bother to tell us this. Go on, Alex. Brilliant. It had never been used before. Absolutely spot on. Why do three of the four Gospels tell us that? It's a random detail. Well, I just wonder if it's it just, it's just meant to stimulate our memories, particularly the Jews who knew the Old Testament well. If it's never had a body in before, it is a clean place. Okay, death, anything that, anything, any, anything that a dead body touched became unclean. Ceremonially, we'll see that later in the book of Leviticus. But this tomb was a clean place. Christ's body, after he died as a sacrifice, was put in a clean place. He is the true burnt offering, the true sacrifice for our sins. And what does he do after he dies? He ascends into heaven. Christ's work doesn't stop with his last breath. He rises 
and then he ascends into heaven. He goes up literally into God's presence. And because he ascends and goes into heaven, therefore I can too. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews 10. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He went to heaven. Where is Jesus now? He is sat in heaven. I don't know where heaven is, but Jesus, with his human body, is sat at the right hand of God in a throne in heaven somewhere. He didn't stop being a man. He remains God and man for eternity now and is sat in heaven. How did he get there? He ascended. At the beginning of Acts, he goes up, doesn't he, in the cloud. And because he ascended, I can ascend too. You can ascend too. You and I go with him, if you like, into God's presence. Remember how the burnt offering worked? This ascension offering worked? The first thing that was burnt was what? The head. Then the body which was dirty, was washed, and then that was burnt too. Two stages. The head wasn't washed, seemingly clean, and then the body follows afterwards. The head, what are we told in the New Testament? Christ is the head of the church, the head of the body. He, the head, goes first, but where the head goes, the body follows. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have Christ in heaven without also having the church in heaven with him. Christ cannot be in heaven without you which is such phenomenal news. And so you and I follow him through. We are crucified with him, Paul says. You know, we, we die with him. Somehow, mysteriously, we died with him on the cross. And then the fire of the Holy Spirit purifies, sanctifies us, and takes us ultimately to heaven too. It's interesting, the fire on the altar, that bronze altar, isn't lit in Leviticus 1. We're not it's not started yet. Okay? Moses is being told what to do when it happens. The fire is lit in chapter 9. And who lights it? God. You know, the fiery, cloudy pillar that symbolizes God's presence. The fire comes out of the Holy of Holies and lights the altar. And they're told, never let it go out. Okay? The priests have to keep going all the time, all the time, all the time. I think it's symbolically, therefore, that if you like, it's God's fire burning on the altar. Symbolic of his Holy Spirit. You die under the knife. The Holy Spirit purifies you. And we ascend with Christ. And so this sacrifice tells us about the gospel and about our worship. It tells us about the gospel. Look at, look at how Hebrews uh, 10 applies this great news that Christ is the once and for all sacrifice of sin. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's the body being washed again. Hear the echoes? Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What does this teach us about the gospel? Well, it teaches we can enter the holy places. We've seen that time and time again. Only the priests could enter in the, in the Old Testament. But now we can enter heaven. Children, how do you get into heaven? Christ carries you in. It teaches about grace. God has made our way back to paradise. All these dreams we have, these hopes of the uh, perfect future, the countryside cottage, the career that succeeds the fame that whatever it might be 
They're all about us striving and achieving. And most of us, if we're honest, we know, we know they just don't come, do they? Marriage doesn't turn out to be what we hoped it would be. The career stalls and stutters. The home is never quite fixed. We're never quite safe and secure. Illness breaks in, whatever it might be. We cannot build paradise, but the promise of the Bible is that God will come and take us there in Christ. We simply have to be attached to him. And the sacrifice tells us of God's love for us with a pleasing aroma. It's not simply that God lets you into heaven with a bit of sigh because Jesus twisted his arm. If I asked you this morning, what does God think of you? If you stop thinking about yourself now, what, what does God think of you right now? A lot of the time we think, well, he's probably a bit disappointed. He'll be angry that I did that and he'll be just a bit, well, a bit gutted I thought that and, you know, I've not really lived for him this year so I suppose he's, you know, 50-50 with me maybe if I've had a good week. But no, we're a pleasing aroma. He's delighted with us because we come before him in Christ. We're completely secure. If Christ, the head, is there, well, the body is safe too. God can no more throw you out of heaven than he can amputate a limb from Jesus. Okay, how likely is it that Jesus sat in heaven is going to have a, a limb, you know, a leg cut off and thrown out back down to, to hell? It's a ridiculous thought. But you are more tightly bound to Christ than your arm is to your body. Remember, all these pictures... In all these pictures of you know, Christ and the church being like a married couple or being like a head and a body, the sort of physical reality, our marriages, our bodies, are less true than the picture to which they point. You are more tightly bound to Christ than your physical head is to your physical body. So says the author of Hebrews, hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our hope. This is the only way speaks to the gospel, this sacrifice. And finally, it speaks to our worship. See how the author goes on. And, verse 24, sorry, of Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Keep meeting together. Keep gathering together as church. They keep encouraging one another. Ultimately, keep worshipping. And the way Hebrews develops, fascinating way. Just, just flick over the page to he- Hebrews chapter 12. This idea of us going up uh, into God's presence. Uh, Christ ultimately has carried you spiritually. And, and in one sense, you're, you're already sat in heaven if you're a Christian. Okay? Because you're bound to Christ. Spiritually, mysteriously, and I know we can't get our heads around it. But somehow, we're told several times in the New Testament, we're already sat in the heavenly realms. We're already there. Your body just needs to catch up one day. Okay, but spiritually, you're already sat there. And Hebrews 12 uses this image of going up uh, to speak about church. They come to Hebrews 12 and verse 18. For you, you Christians, have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure, that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You've not come to Mount Sinai 
but you have come to a mountain, he says. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abraham. You don't you haven't come to Mount Sinai to worship God, says the author of Hebrews, but you have come to a mountain. It's not a mountain you can touch and see, like Sinai was in the desert, but you have come to a mountain. You have, as Christians, been gathered around a mountain, and this is a mountain you can ascend. This mountain picture all the way through the Bible is a picture ultimately of coming into heaven. As Christians, as we gather together in particular, who do we gather with? Well, the list is there in verse 22, isn't it? Angels, but more beyond the number you can count. Are those who've died and gone ahead of us, the spirits who've been made perfect, to God, to Jesus. Children, if someone said to you, who, did you, who was at church yesterday? So you could say, well, I saw Ben and I saw Charlotte and I saw Gwiz and Tom and Erica and, and that'd be true. But you could also say, well, there were more angels than I could count. And there was Martin Luther you know, the Christian who died 500 years ago, St. Augustine, great-grandpa. There was Jesus and there was God. Those people met with us to worship as we went up the mountain, as it were. It's not that they came down, but rather that we went up. Of course, we're always in heaven, in the heavenly realms. Okay? It's no, there's no sense in which you can ever be thrown out of God's presence now Christ has brought us in. But there is a special way in which, as we gather together to worship, we are in God's presence. Uh, that's why the passage goes on to speak about worship. Verse 28, as we read at the beginning of our service, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We, we think of ourselves as we come together on a Sunday as those who are like ascending the mountain again or perhaps better realizing that we are there acknowledging that this is a focused time of worship and there is a way of worshiping acceptably in verse 28 and presumably unacceptably therefore too it matters what we do when we gather together as a people i've got to confess it's something i've never even thought about for years even as a minister i hadn't thought about this I sort of used to think, well, in the Old Testament, God cared how he was worshipped. But thankfully, the New Testament, he just sort of chilled out so we can do what we want. You know, the tabernacle was a serious business, coming before his presence and gathering as, as God's people. In the Old Testament, the temple, the tabernacle, the fire, the sacrament, that was a serious business. But then the New Testament comes and now, hey, he's just sort of laid back, do what you want, doesn't matter. You know, as if Moses said, well, you know, hey, guys, when we get to the New Covenant... You know, why not get someone to put on a funny beard and dressing gown on to dress up as me and, you know, do some funny skits. That'll be okay. Uh, why not just uh, make up what you do, what you do in the service and how you do it? God doesn't mind anymore. Uh, why not have a puppet show? Uh, why not do some painting or some dancing? Whatever you feel like is your way of worshipping, you should go for it. But no, says Hebrews. God still has to be worshipped rightfully, with rightly, sorry, with reverence and awe. 
how do you approach worship on a Sunday? As you come uh, on a Sunday, how do you think of it? Just a bunch of people getting together to sing some songs, hear a talk about Jesus, say some prayers? Or do you think you're meeting with more angels than you can possibly count? With Billy Graham and St. Paul and John Wesley and whoever else might be your heroes from church history. And ultimately, far more significantly, with God and with Christ. Psalm 22, I will lead the brothers in praise in the congregation, Christ says. He is with us, leading our worship. How inappropriate would it be to be in the tabernacle and then checking your phone for the sports results? Or checking your watch to wonder if Aaron might be done by now. We are in God's presence in a special way when we meet and hear his word preached, meet to gather to worship, meet around his table. Psalm 121, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. Christ has opened the way once and for all. We are secure, we are safe, and so we come and worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray before we come to the Lord's table. Our Father God, we praise you that we do not have uh, to face the fire and the knife on our own. We praise you that we have a perfect representative in Christ who willingly substituted himself for us. Our Father, without him, we would be lost. The knife would fall in our execution. The fire would burn us eternally in judgment. And so with such gratitude in our hearts and joy, uh, we come to you in his name. Uh, He who carried us has sat us safely in those heavenly realms. How we ask that as we rejoice in that once and for all sacrifice and salvation, uh, that you might make us into a people who worship you with reverence and awe as we delight in what you have done and all that you will do. Do this, we pray, uh, for your own honour. In Jesus' name, amen.